Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. Today's episode features the 2004 movie Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Now, here's your host, Jeff Cummings. John Williams had plenty of time on his schedule to work on the score to Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, and he was likely very relieved about that. Now, as you will remember, Williams was in a time crunch regarding Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, which forced him to reuse a lot of his music from the Sorcerer's Stone film instead of creating an entirely new score. There was no way that was happening with Prisoner of Azkaban. Williams would be working with a new director, a new visual landscape, and a much different tone, all demanding something different to come from John Williams' mind. And he certainly delivered, though the reactions on the finished product turned out to be not as universally praised as expected. Personally, I love the score to Prisoner of Azkaban, and so does my co-host for this episode. Joining me from Norway is Paulius Edukas. Hello, Paulius. Hi, Jeff. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be joining you on The Baton, the podcast which I've been passionately listening to since the very first episode almost two years ago. I think I can speak for the majority of John Williams fans when I say that the time and research that you've put into this amazing retrospective of the Maestro's career has been invaluable and eye-opening to all of us. I'm very grateful to you for your work. Yeah, thank you for saying that. I really appreciate it. So give us a little history regarding your musical background and how you became a John Williams fan. I was born into a somewhat musical family, and I was pretty much automatically signed up for musical school from a very early age, where I learned to play the grand piano, sing in the choir, and later I even picked up the clarinet. So although I'm no professional, uh, music has always been around me, and especially during the past decade, my interest in it has been growing considerably. I have also always been an avid fan of science fiction and fantasy, and naturally as a kid I encountered the Star Wars universe, with which I immediately fell in love. I'm sure that the music was essential in this, since I remember humming those iconic tunes all the time as I played with wooden swords outside, imagining myself to be a Jedi Master. As time went by I got into more films, such as E.T., Jurassic Park and Harry Potter. However, it wasn't until I was in high school that I connected the dots and realized that all of my favorite works of sci-fi and fantasy were scored by the same composer, John Williams. That was what led me to a deeper appreciation of film music, and as I began exploring the influences of my favorite film composers, uh, what led me to a renewed interest in classical music in general. About five years ago, I discovered the John Williams Fan Network, and that marked the time when I really started calling myself a fan. I began hoping for a concert in Europe, that almost happened in 2018, and it finally happened in 2020 with the Vienna Philharmonic. I took my sister and my cousin along, who are also big fans, not least due to my influence, and that concert was an unforgettable experience. There's something very heartwarming about seeing your favorite film composer conduct the best orchestra in the world, in a world-famous Golden Hall, and an elite musical community, which has always had a kind of snobbish and skeptical attitude towards film music. So seeing those walls finally break down and the standing ovations kick in and the glowing reviews pour in was a very emotional and uplifting experience, both for John Williams, I'm sure, and for the fans. I'm so glad you're able to do that. It's just another person who was able to see that concert live. I'm, I'm jealous, Paulius. I just really wish I had been able to be there. So congratulations on being able to experience that. So where does the score for Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban fit in your list of favorite John Williams scores? I consider it to be one of John Williams' best works. The film is also my favorite installment of the Harry Potter franchise, both in terms of its cinematic aspects and its directorial style. It has a very English feel to it because it was filmed on location more than inside the studio, which was a first for the franchise. 
and it certainly takes a darker turn. The darkness of Prisoner of Azkaban can be seen not only in the gloominess of its screenplay, but also in its visuals. Most scenes take place at dusk, at night, or under cloudy, thunderous skies. That's why those bright, hopeful moments, such as Harry successfully using the Patronus charm, become so powerful and great for. And also, our three heroes are now 13 years old, so it's time for them to start growing up, and a lot of what transpires in this third year will cause them to do so. The necessities of changing the look certainly meant Chris Columbus wouldn't be the right choice to continue as director. Even the most depressing movie he had made up to that point, which was Stepmom, had a slightly happy aura around it the entire time. That certainly wasn't going to work for Prisoner of Azkaban. But Columbus stayed around as producer, serving to help with the transition. So in comes Mexican director Alfonso Cuarón. I read the announcement in 2003 that he was taking over directing duties, and I was excited when I read it. One of my favorite movies is A Little Princess from 1995, which was Cuarón's first American language film. And incidentally, also a Warner Brothers movie. On the surface, A Little Princess is a movie for kids, but there is a lot of dark stuff lurking underneath. That sounds a lot like Prisoner of Azkaban. J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter novels, said in many interviews that she was impressed by Coron's work on Itu Mama Tambien, the sexually charged Mexican film from 2001. That was a breakthrough for the director and its male co-stars. The style of Itu Mama Tambien and Coron's desire to experiment with long shots and camera movements impressed everyone involved. And the revolving door of top British actors brought in new talent for the third film. Emma Thompson came in as the mystical teacher Trelawney. David Thewlis was supposed to play Professor Quirrell in Sorcerer's Stone, but got the role of the new Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher R.J. Lupin instead. And biggest of them all was Gary Oldman as the new villain Sirius Black. But the most talked about casting choice was for Albus Dumbledore. Uh, You remember that Richard Harris died shortly before the release of Chamber of Secrets, and many names were considered as a replacement. Now, Harris's family wanted good friend Peter O'Toole, but instead it was Michael Gambon who took the job. Now, going back to A Little Princess, it was scored by Scottish composer Patrick Doyle, but Doyle was not going to get a reunion with Quadrone because Williams was already attached to write the score before Quadrone was hired. The maestro started his work on this project near the end of 2003, after debuting two concertos in the fall. Now, what's so unique about this score is that Williams almost completely disregards the music he wrote for the previous two films, something he had never done for any of his sequel scores. Many people were disappointed by the fact that John Williams had abandoned pretty much every theme he had written for the first two films. Many feel, even to this day, that the Azkaban score is not as iconic, memorable, or as good as Sorcerer's Stone and the Chamber of Secrets. My opinion, however, is the exact opposite of that. I think that the film demanded an entirely new kind of music. Those well-known, sweet and celebratory themes would have held completely out of place in Azkaban. And Coron correctly assessed the need to start from a blank canvas and a blank score sheet. And gone are the fanfares for Gryffindor and Quidditch. And the friendship theme for our three main characters is totally scrapped as well. Although Voldemort is mentioned a lot in this movie, he never appears, so his theme doesn't show up either. The only thing that remains from the previous two scores is, of course, Harry's main theme. And not putting that in the score would be like starting a Star Wars film without the great fanfare. Oh, and there is a bit of the magic theme at the end of the film for us to enjoy as well. What amazes me is the infinite complexity and variety of the music heard in the film, and the way in which John Williams joins all those cues together into a coherent whole. Azkaban features music written in the style of the medieval renaissance, it has classical waltzes, it has bebop jazz, it has fugue-like compositions, atonal and minimalistic cues, as well as source music that doesn't just passively sit there doing nothing, but which interacts with the underscore, producing effects which I have never experienced before. I really can't wait to dive into the soundtrack, Jeff. Well, Paulius, let's not waste any more time. Just about every musical cue tells a great story that is begging to be told, and we'll discuss a lot of them. Which cue do you want to discuss first? 
How about we start with the new themes that Williams composed for the film? Yeah, sounds good to me. So you might remember that Williams wrote a theme for Harry's family in Sorcerer's Stone, heard whenever Harry's parents are mentioned. We're still talking about Harry's parents in Azkaban, but that family theme from Sorcerer's Stone is replaced by entirely new music. And it feels more connected to Harry's theme because it is also, like Harry's theme, written in 3-4 time as a waltz. I'd say that the theme, let's call it the past theme, as it's often heard when Harry reminisces about his past, has a slight English folk sound to it, no doubt because of its similarity to the folk song Greensleeves. It really synergizes well with the more Renaissance cues of the Azkaban score. We first hear it when Harry goes to his room, angry that the visiting Outmarge had insulted his parents. The camera glides towards the nightstand, on which we see a moving portrait of Harry's parents. This theme gets a wonderful development much later in the score, when Harry's talking with Professor Lupin. It starts off with an oboe solo, reflectively playing the main melody. The oboe holds a special place in my heart. Ever since I heard Ennio Morricone's score for the mission, and specifically the Gabriel's oboe cue, which made me fall in love with the sound of that instrument, whenever John Williams writes solo parts, it's usually the oboe ones that become my favorite renditions of the themes. After the oboe, a recorder gives us another statement of the theme, and then we hear a transition into the Hedwig's theme, as the camera follows Hedwig's flight towards the clock tower. Once the camera centers in on the tower, we hear the last transition back into the past theme, now played by the horns and woodwinds. like the Hedwig's theme insert in this piece, and the way John Williams effortlessly transitions between the pieces. The melodies seem to synergize well with each other, as if they had been written specifically for those transitions. Yeah, that's why I think this new theme and Harry's theme now have a better connection. Williams might have felt that the theme for the parents needed to connect their son's theme better, so he came up with this new one that I really love. Now, as I often do on this show, I'm giving away some spoilers. So, we know that Sirius Black was sent to Azkaban for supposedly murdering Peter Pettigrew. But we find out later that he was framed and Pettigrew is alive. The big reveal of the movie, really, is that Sirius is Harry's godfather. And after Pettigrew is captured, Sirius invites Harry to live with him. This brings Sirius into the family theme, and just before Sirius flies away near the end of the film... Harry is happy to know that he has a living family member. And Williams underscores that literally. 
by using the family theme triumphantly as Sirius makes his exit. But the best moment for the family thing comes when Harry first conjures up the Patronus charm, which will help him if he ever encounters another Dementor. He has to find a powerful memory to make the Patronus strong, and his memory is, of course, his parents. So when Harry uses the charm on a Boggart who appears as a Dementor, Williams gives us a very triumphant and bold rendition of the family theme. In the Sorcerer's Stone episode, Jeff, you refer to the Hogwarts theme as the Gryffindor theme. And I really like that. After looking back on those scenes, indeed, it seems that the theme characterizes the house of Gryffindor more than anything else. I still usually say Hogwarts theme as a force of habit, and as a way not to cause confusion when talking to other John Williams fans. But in the context of this podcast, the Gryffindor theme is the perfect name. In Person of Azkaban, however... Williams decided to scrap the theme altogether and give us a new theme for Hogwarts as a whole, and comes to us in the form of a song called Double Trouble. Alfonso Cuaron asked John Williams to compose the song for the film, and the words from William Shakespeare's play Macbeth were chosen as its lyrics. The lyrics fit perfectly, as they convey the imagery of witches adding weird, magical ingredients into a cauldron, as well as foreshadowing the dangers that lie ahead for our main characters, as in the line, something wicked this way comes. But it doesn't really feel that ominous to me. And I think Williams orchestrates the song to show that these young wizards and witches probably find the words spoken by these witches in Macbeth to be a bit comical and light. Now, Williams takes this song, performed on the first night at Hogwarts, and converts it right away into thematic material. It's best used in the fun scene when the fat lady in the portrait for the entrance to Gryffindor House hides in another painting while she fears the appearance of Sirius Black. Thank you. 
I think it's best to talk here about the exciting instrumentation choices Williams made in Prisoner of Azkaban. The theme for Double Trouble is written in a Renaissance style, emphasizing archaic instruments like the recorder and the harpsichord. This theme is repeated many times in different variations and orchestrations, including Hagrid's Lesson, where the cue reaches its ultimate Renaissance potential. Yes, it makes the Wizarding World feel very, very English. All those Renaissance-era instruments were provided by the Dufay Collective, an ensemble of musicians who specialized in performing music played on instruments that were popular during the Renaissance era of the 1400s and 1500s. Some of these instruments are still used in orchestras today, such as the recorder and the harpsichord. Others would be hard to find, such as the sham, a woodwind instrument that was eventually replaced by the oboe in the 1700s, and the dulcian, a precursor to the bassoon. The Dufay Collective did not just provide the instruments needed for Prisoner of Azkaban, they also played prominently in a few scenes. One of them was a brief moment for the ghost Sir Cadogan, who rides around Hogwarts on his horse, and was part of a couple of deleted scenes as well. For Sirius Black is very minimalistic and self-contained. There's no massive symphonic theme, but only three notes. And the dissonant harmony between the minor and major seconds is very powerful and sufficient to create a frightening, sinister mood. This is typical of Williams. Remember the theme from Jaws, or even Voldemort's motif in Sorcerer's Stone and Chamber of Secrets, which is constructed in the same way. We first hear Sirius' theme when Ron's father tells Harry more about Sirius. The Sean plays First the source music, then John Williams weaves in Sirius' theme on the strings.
this is not the last time that we hear a fusion of source music and the score of the film. In fact, I believe that Alfonso Cuaron made the conscious decision to blur the line between diegetic music and the underscore, which I find fascinating since it rarely happens in cinema. The full potential of this technique will be fully demonstrated a bit later in the score. And those notes played on the harpsichord will come back to us later as well. Sirius's theme doesn't play very much. It plays very briefly in the Quidditch match music, and then not again really until we see Sirius in the flesh. My favorite new theme is the one for Peter Pettigrew, the man who everyone thinks is dead, but has been living for 12 years as the Weasley Rat Scabbers. His theme played in the early scene in the film on the harpsichord when Harry is learning about Sirius Black, but it's in a disjointed way. It comes together fully later in a scene when Harry is looking at the Marauder's map in bed. This theme continues its big moment as Harry sees Peter's name on the Marauder's map, which we are told a few times never lies about a person's location in Hogwarts. As Peter's feet get closer to Harry's on the map, the brass take over the theme and make it more tense before stopping once Peter seemingly walks by Harry unseen. This music was used almost note for note in the scene when Pettigrew is transformed back into a human and confronted by Lupin and Sirius. Williams composed original music for the scene, but I think it was a wise choice to reuse the music. If you feel that the themes for Pettigrew and Sirius sound similar, you're not wrong. In fact, they are mirror images of each other. Listen to the Sirius motif, which moves downwards by a semitone, and then upwards by a tone. And now listen to the motif from Pettigrew's theme, which moves upwards by a semitone, and then downwards by a tone. Here's Sirius again. And here's Pettigrew. I think that the symmetry of the motifs is not coincidental, and I believe that their relatedness is meant to show the mysterious and confusing nature of Sirius and Pettigrew, as Harry tries to figure out who really betrayed his parents. Yeah, even after we find out the truth, they have a strong connection that remains in the music. A lot of the music in the film is written mostly for individual scenes or for specific actions that may not be attached to a person or creature. 
but they are all such rich, complex compositions that remind me of the music for the tennis game in The Witches of Eastwick or the asteroid field chase in The Empire Strikes Back. One of those scenes kicks off the movie in a comical fashion. It's the Aunt Marge scene, somewhat reminiscent of the work of Sergei Prokofiev, in particular his ballet Cinderella. In the second half, the waltz turns into pastiche for Giacchino Rossini, quoting several sections from his overture from La Gazza Ladra, The Thieving Magpie. It's written in a waltz style, and even though waltzes are not inherently comical, John Williams writes the music in such a deliberately excessive style, increasing its flourish and tempo until it pretty much becomes self-aware and ironic. It's a ridiculous piece, and that's why it works very well to enhance the ridiculous overdrop action happening on screen. I like the tuba here. Perhaps too obvious a musical choice, but it would be weird not to have it. Instead of going for the obvious cadence to finish the piece, Williams uses a dissonant chord, which sounds wrong, but creates a lot of character. What Willems could have done, had he wanted to stay true to the Rossinian ending, was to end the piece in a simple way, by repeating the tonic chord twice in different octaves, which would have sounded like this. This is indeed how Rossini's overture ends. Instead, Williams complicates the penultimate chord by introducing tension in the form of minor ninths. These are intervals that are relatives of minor seconds, and they sound just as dissonant only that they are separated by an additional octave. The intervals are G natural and G sharp an octave above, and D natural and E flat an octave above. And when you combine these two intervals, you get a very dissonant chord. This dissonance creates a sharp contrast in the otherwise consonant piece, and it makes the ultimate resolution feel more satisfying. Williams has used dissonance in this way before. My favorite example might be the insane trumpet line towards the end of Summon the Heroes, which you have covered already in an early episode of the podcast, Jeff.
yeah, that's a great, absolutely great ending to Summon the Heroes. And you make a good point about why it sounded so weird yet so wonderful. Now, before we go any further, I want to give a shout out to Lori Hout, who pointed out the Rossini connection to Art Marge's Waltz as well in an email to me not long ago. I'm glad there are people out there with a great encyclopedia of knowledge about classical music. So thanks to Lori and to you, Paldias, for pointing out the homage to Rossini. Let's listen to the final minute of Rossini's overture to La Gassa Ladra for a little comparison. I could talk for hours about the music for the bus trip to the Leaky Cauldron. It's very much like the music written for the Cantina Band in Star Wars. It feels out of place, but it fits the scene, and you can't imagine anything better for it. Williams wanted Quaron to not hear it until it was performed by the orchestra on recording day. Now imagine what Quaron thought when the orchestra played this. Nothing strange there, just a bassoon having a little comical fun as Harry and the bus conductor banter. But then, the bus takes off at a maddening speed. I love that stuttering staccato by the trumpets at the end there as the bus approaches an elderly woman in the street and stops on a dime, knocking Harry into the window. Once the action picks up again, it slows down as the bus squeezes in between two double-decker buses. Now here, Williams takes an accordion to convey the squeezed feeling and the calliope to make it comical. The calliope can best be described as a steam organ, and you'll hear that under the slow motion performances of the other instruments. I'm sure John Williams had as much fun writing this piece as we have listening to it. 
I totally adore it. When you talk about essential music from Prisoner of Azkaban, you must mention Buckbeak's flight. Buckbeak is a part eagle, part horse, and he instantly connects to Harry on a flight around Hogwarts and the nearby lake. The beginning of the queue alone deserves special mention, as Buckbeak gallops for the takeoff. To score that scene with a heavy, powerful percussion was a great decision, because it dramatically accentuates the galloping and makes the ascent feel all the more liberating. That contrast would not have been achieved if the piece began differently, say, with a string intro. As for the flying part, it's Williams at his forte, and it really reminds me of the finale during E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Just as in E.T., Azkaban has a very simple melody, consisting of an arpeggiatic tonic chord that continuously jumps up to new heights and then slowly descends, before jumping up again, creating a flowing, soaring sensation. the melody powerful is the rich, woodwind-heavy orchestration underneath it, which I really love. It makes the whole piece magical, and makes this theme my favorite in the film. It took me a long time to appreciate the music for this scene, Paulius. As Buckbeak took off for the skies with Harry, my mind felt that this was nowhere near the level of genius that Williams wrote for E.T.'s flight or Superman's flight. Yes, E.T.'s theme has a set of descending notes as well, but with Buckbeak, I never felt that the music was conveying the feeling of flight. It took me almost a decade, a decade, to get close to an appreciation of this theme. I guess my immense love of the flying theme for E.T. probably made it hard to accept this as another great one by John Williams. One thing that might help you, Jeff, is another interpretation of the music. This theme comes back as Bugby carries Harry, Hermione, and a new Lifreed series over Hogwarts, but it also shows up in a very subtle way when Harry and Hermione first begin their time travel adventure. When Hermione realizes that they could still save Buckbeak's life, the thematic melody returns for a brief, subtle moment, which is why I think that the theme might symbolize something more than mere flight or Buckbeak. It feels like a theme for freedom. That's a bit of a stretch, but I'll give that one to you, Paulius. Alright, so let's talk about that time travel plot that takes up a large part of the third act. It starts with Harry and Hermione using a time turner to travel in time about 12 hours to not only save Sirius from the Dementors, but also keep Buckbeak from being executed. I fell in love with the music for this time travel the moment I heard it the first time. 
particularly the concept of using a ticking watch to convey the urgency of time. That ticking is replicated by the strings in a furious ostinato as we watch these two move through time. I recall that Hans Zimmer did a similar thing in Christopher Nolan's Interstellar, and even more prominently in Dunkirk, but otherwise I really don't know any film examples where the clock becomes such an important part of the score. Another cool fact is that upon activating the time toner, we can briefly hear several instruments playing in the reverse, mirroring the fact that we visually see time in the room being reversed as nine changes back into day. I think I can recognize some reverse strings and a reverse cymbal, but the instruments are difficult to distinguish since they sound so strange. It's one of the rare times that Williams decides to modify his score with digital techniques. Those instruments always did sound a bit strange, and thank you, you helped me figure out why. So there's a brief moment in the score that has turned into something of a legend based on the story behind its performance that not many people might know, and I'm not sure if you know it, Polyus. It's the scene when we see a bluebird flying around Hogwarts before it is pulverized by the Whomping Willow. The flute stands out here with its virtuoso performance, following the bird's innocent flight before its demise stops the music. The flute was played by Karen Jones, and it was part of the first day's performance of the score. As is always the case with studio musicians on film scores, Jones didn't get to practice this in advance. And she nailed it perfectly on the first try, as did the backing string section. I don't know if they did more takes, and I don't know if Williams accepted the first take as the best, but it's remarkable that a flute solo that seems so difficult was done so perfectly. I hadn't heard about that story behind the QGF, but I do agree the flute solo is just flawless. I love moments like this in the score. The music feels like an homage to Prokofiev's The Bird part from Peter and the Wolf. The flute there is also the centerpiece of the music, but in Azkaban that part becomes even more virtuosic. So we've gone through this entire episode and I don't think either of us have mentioned our absolute favorite musical scenes. If you don't mind, Polyus, I'd like to talk about mine first. Sure, go ahead, Jeff. So it's the Quidditch scene that always stands out for me in this movie. Not only is the actual game much different from what we saw in the previous two movies, with the match happening in a rainstorm that knocks out a couple of players with lightning, but the music is radically different. There's no big brassy John Williams fanfare this time, and the scene is much shorter than the previous two filmed Quidditch matches but it packs a bigger punch and only slows down briefly for a rest. There's a long line melody that plays throughout, a melody that I did not recognize as a relative of the DS Irae until watching the film for this episode. I'm almost ashamed to admit that, especially because I listen to this cue often. But when breaking apart the melody, I can hear it clearly, 
and it matches the scene perfectly with the lightning strikes and the eventual appearance of the Dementors creating havoc all over the place. That brief rest comes here when Harry sees a dog-like figure in the clouds with Sirius Black's theme playing quieter in the film version than it does here. I just want to stop here and say how much I love that woodwind stinger there. It comes when the snitch flies in front of Harry and he takes a swipe at it. It's another great sync point technique that I love seeing and hearing. Okay, so the music continues as Harry chases the snitch and the Dementors appear. There's going to be a section of music played that is not in the film, but is my favorite part of the cue. It's the long line melody played in full, but traded off between trumpets and the French horns in a sort of argument between the two. Maybe to convey Harry versus the Dementors. Another great technique by Williams that sadly had to be cut from the film version. The Dementors chase Harry, and the Dies Irae really makes itself known. The violins really get a workout in this scene, but more so here. The energy in this scene is off the charts, both visually and musically. Just listen to the many intertwined string and woodwind lines, which make it all sound like a fugue. It's not often that Wilmus goes for these types of compositions, but whenever he does, I can't get enough of it. Most recently, in The Force Awakens, March of the Resistance Queue has a middle section that is written in a similar way. It's clear that John Williams considers flying broomsticks to be similar to flying X-wings. 
So I'm going to highlight my favorite scene in the movie, which is the Bogart scene. This is the epitome of Quaron and Williams blending source music with an underscore in a way that is rarely used in films. Professor Lupin puts in on Swing Record, which plays Hot Liquors by Dick Walter. That is the source music, which is heard whenever the frightening Bogart is turned into something comical. The underscore, on the other hand, is heard whenever we see the frightening form of Bogart. The source music and the score alternate, and I completely adore that interplay. Next! Rock! Concentrate. Hey, Sophia. Be brave. I like that Harry gets to face the jack-in-the-box, because a clown is an ambiguous character. This ambiguity is ingeniously reflected in the music. It's exactly at this moment in the film that the source music and the underscore fuses into one, where the boundary between the two becomes diluted. It's really difficult to figure out what you're hearing. Is it Lupin's record player? Is it the sound effects? Or is it John Williams' orchestra? John Williams uses this very ambiguity to strike fear into every listener. The strings suddenly become reminiscent of the rhythmic, terrorizing strings in Bernard Herrmann's score for the Psycho. Only in Azkaban they are much slower and glide upwards. As the smiles disappear from Harry's and Lupin's faces, and as the Bogart turns into a Dementor, that's when the cue culminates into an atonal and rigorous blow to the senses. The instrumentation becomes insane, the violins are told to glide to the highest pitch as fast as they can. At the end we have a piccolo section. Normally a composer would avoid having more than one piccolo playing in an orchestra, because they don't mix very well with each other, and they tend to cause painful dissonance. What does Willems do? Well, he places not two, but three of them in the orchestra, and tells them to improvise at the highest possible pitches. I cannot get enough of the skew. It's a masterclass in scoring, and it makes me feel sad that John Williams and Alfonso Cuaron didn't have more projects together. It's a missed opportunity. Well, besides this film and A Little Princess, most of Cuaron's films don't rely heavily on music, so there were very few opportunities. Roma is especially notable for the lack of music, and Children of Men is light on score, so likely not a film that interested Williams even if Cuaron asked him. And there was Gravity in 2013, which will come up in the episode for The Book Thief. Gravity produced an Oscar-winning score, but not by John Williams. But this was a great one-time collaboration between Williams and Quaron. It resulted in a box office take of almost $250 million in the U.S. and Canada. And in the United Kingdom, it earned £45 million, the highest yet for a Harry Potter film. When the money was raking in, Warner Brothers was begging Quaron to continue with the Harry Potter franchise. But Quaron had already said no because pre-production for the fourth film, Goblet of Fire, needed to start before post-production on Prisoner of Azkaban was finished. Quaron decided to tackle another ambitious project for his next film, the dystopian drama Children of Men, which was known for its long, unedited camera shots that would become a hallmark in Quaron's films. 
So though critics praised Cuadron's direction in Prisoner of Azkaban, his peers pretty much didn't give him any recognition for the film. He'd have to wait until 2013's Gravity to start getting the praise he long deserved, winning the first of two Academy Awards for directing. So with the Academy changing its views on the rules for scores for sequel films, John Williams was once again in the running for another Oscar. The original score nomination for Prisoner of Azkaban was Williams' 43rd overall Oscar nomination and his 31st for original score. I had high hopes the Academy wanted to right the wrong that they made by not giving him the Oscar for writing the score to Sorcerer's Stone, especially since the other nominees that year seemed a bit light. I do enjoy James Newton Howard's work for The Village and Thomas Newman's music for the Lemony Snicket film. Seeing John Debney on the list for Passion of the Christ was interesting, and Jan A.P. Kazmarek for Finding Neverland was the fifth nominee. And it was that score by Kazmarek that won the Oscar. Not the choice I would have made if I had to choose one besides Williams. But the Oscar choice went with the history of the Academy often giving the award to a score written for a Best Picture nominee. Only five times in the previous 15 years did the original score Oscar not go to a Best Picture Oscar nominee. You can find the video of Kazmarek accepting the award on YouTube, and you can see that Williams is not pleased with the announcement. I'm sure he felt, as we all did, that his work to turn the Harry Potter music on its ear deserved the Oscar. I absolutely agree with you, Jeff. The competition for the best score that year didn't seem that tough, and it appeared that John Williams was well on his way to snatching a sixth Oscar. Unfortunately, that didn't happen, as the Academy does sometimes like to cast their votes in a formulaic way. I won't lose sleep over that though. The Oscars should be treated more like a lottery anyway. The important thing is that all Harry Potter cues have been commercially available for two years now, thanks to the box set produced by Mike Matasino. And to me, as a fan of those scores, having access to all the music is even more important than the Oscar statute. Yeah, you're probably right. Prisoner of Azkaban was Williams' farewell to the Harry Potter world. He would not write any more original music for any of the future films, though he was asked to write the score for the final film. He couldn't work on the fourth film because of conflicts with the four film scores he was contracted to write in 2005. Perhaps it was a little bit of redemption for Patrick Doyle, as he was picked to carry on the Harry Potter torch, as it were, for Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. The maestro wrapped up his work in London for Azkaban in late March 2004, then hopped on a plane to return home to Los Angeles and start working on his next film. Steven Spielberg already had an early cut of his comedy drama set for a summer release, and Williams set pencil to paper in April and created music for Spielberg's film The Terminal. And that's the subject of the next episode of The Baton. Paulius, it has been a lot of fun, so much fun, discussing the score to Harry Potter and the As Prisoner of Azkaban with you. I am absolutely amazed by the artistry of this score every time I hear it, and will always count this among my favorites. It was a pleasure discussing the Prisoner of Azkaban score with you, Jeff. As I've said before, I also consider it to be one of John Williams' best scores. And I'm really grateful to you that you invited me to share my favorite cues with you and your listeners. And our thanks as well to everyone for listening. Now, if you have comments about the show, please send them to me at jeffswim at aol.com or post them on the Podbean app. I'll see you next time, and until then, the baton is down.